We at Amazing Stories are thankful for and gracefully accept the donations we receive from our listeners from across the world who count on the unique programming we provide. You too can donate through the link provided in the description section of each episode. Please keep in mind that the continued support from our growing audience helps us fulfill our mission of bringing you a new amazing story every day. Thank you for listening, and we hope you continue to enjoy our stories. The woman lay motionless on his bed, sleeping. It was past four in the afternoon. At least twenty times Neville had stolen into the bedroom to look at her and see if she were awake. Now he sat in the kitchen, drinking coffee and worrying. What if she is infected, though, he argued with himself. The worry had started a few hours before, while Ruth was sleeping. Now he couldn't rid himself of the fear. No matter how he reasoned, it didn't help. All right, she was tanned from the sun. She'd been walking in the daylight. The dog had been in the daylight, too. Neville's fingers tapped restlessly on the table. Simplicity had departed. The dream had faded into disturbing complexity. There had been no wondrous embrace, no magic words spoken. Beyond her name, he had got nothing from her. Getting her to the house had been a battle. She had cried and begged him not to kill her. No matter what he said to her, she kept crying and begging. He had visualized something on the order of a Hollywood production, stars in their eyes, entering the house, arms about each other, fade out. Instead, he had been forced to tug and cajole and argue and scold while she held back. The entrance had been less than romantic. He had to drag her in. Once in the house, she had been no less frightened. He tried to act comfortingly, but all she did was cower in one corner the way the dog had done. She wouldn't eat or drink anything he gave her. Finally, he had been compelled to take her in the bedroom and lock her in. Now she was asleep. He sighed wearily and fingered the handle of his cup. All these years, he thought, dreaming about a companion... Now I meet one and the first thing I do is distrust her, treat her crudely and impatiently. And yet there was really nothing else he could do. He had accepted too long the proposition that he was the only normal person left. It didn't matter that she looked normal. He'd seen too many of them lying in their coma that looked as healthy as she. They weren't, though, and he knew it. The simple fact that she had been walking in the sunlight wasn't enough to tip the scales on the side of trusting acceptance. He had doubted too long. His concept of the society had become iron-bound. It was almost impossible for him to believe that there were others like him. And after the first shock had diminished, all of the dogma of his long years alone had asserted itself. With a heavy breath he rose and went back to the bedroom. She was still in the same position. Maybe, he thought, she's gone back into coma again. He stood over the bed, staring down at her. Ruth. There was so much about her he wanted to know, and yet he was almost afraid to find out. Because if she were like the others, 
there was only one course open, and it was better not to know anything about the people you killed. His hands twitched at his sides. His blue eyes gazed flatly at her. What if it had been a freak occurrence? What if she had snapped out of a coma for a little while and gone wandering? It seemed possible, and yet as far as he knew, daylight was the one thing the germ could not endure. Why wasn't that enough to convince him she was normal? Well, there was only one way to make sure. He bent over and put his hand on her shoulder. Wake up, he said. She didn't stir. His mouth tightened and his fingers drew in on her soft shoulder. Then he noticed the thin golden chain around her throat. Reaching in with rough fingers, he drew it out of the bosom of her dress. He was looking at the tiny gold cross when she woke up and recoiled into the pillow. She's not in a coma. That was all he thought. What are you doing? It was harder to distrust her when she spoke. The sound of the human voice was so strange to him that it had a power over him it had never had before. I'm... nothing. Awkwardly, he stepped back and leaned against the wall. He looked at her a moment longer, then he asked, Where are you from? She lay there looking blankly at him. I asked you where you were from, he said. Again she said nothing. He pushed himself away from the wall with a tight look on his face. Inglewood, she said hastily. He looked at her coldly for a moment, then leaned back against the wall. I see, he said. Did, did you live alone? I was married. Where's your husband? He's dead. For how long? Last week. And what did you do after he died? Ran. She bit her lower lip. I ran away. You mean you've been wandering all this time? Yes. He looked at her without a word. Then abruptly he turned and his boots thumped loudly as he walked into the kitchen. Pulling open a cabinet door, he drew down a handful of garlic cloves. He put them on a dish, tore them into pieces and mashed them to a pulp. The acrid fumes assailed his nostrils. She was propped up on one elbow when he came back. Without hesitation, he pushed the dish almost to her face. She turned her head away with a faint cry. What are you doing? she asked and coughed once. Why do you turn away? Please, why do you turn away? It smells. Her voice broke into a sob. Don't. You're making me sick. He pushed the plate still closer to her face. With a gagging sound, she backed away and pressed against the wall, her legs drawn up on the bed. Stop it, please, she begged. He drew back the dish and watched her body twitching as her stomach convulsed. You're one of them, he said to her, quietly venomous. She sat up suddenly and ran past him into the bathroom. The door slammed behind her, and he could hear the sound of her terrible retching. Thin-lipped, he put the dish down on the bedside table. His throat moved as he swallowed. Infected. It had been a clear sign. He had learned over a year before that the garlic was an allergen to any system infected with Vampyrus bacillus. When the system was exposed to garlic, the stimulated tissues sensitized the cells, causing an abnormal reaction to any further contact with garlic. That was why putting it into their veins had accomplished little. 
They had to be exposed to the odor, and the woman had reacted in the wrong way. Robert Neville sank down on the bed. After a moment he frowned. If what she had said was true, she had been wandering around for a week. She would naturally be exhausted and weak, and under those conditions the smell of so much garlic could have made her wretch. His fist thudded down onto the mattress. He still didn't know then, not for certain. And, objectively, he knew he had no right to decide on inadequate evidence. It was something he'd learned the hard way, something he knew and believed absolutely. He was still sitting there when she unlocked the bathroom door and came out. She stood in the hall a moment looking at him, then went into the living room. He rose and followed. When he came into the living room, she was sitting on the couch. "'Are you satisfied?' she asked. "'Never mind that,' he said. "'You're on trial, not me.' She looked up angrily as if she meant to say something. Then her body slumped, and she shook her head. He felt a twinge of sympathy for a moment. She looked so helpless, her thin hands resting on her lap. She didn't seem to care any more about her torn dress. He looked at the slight swelling of her breast. Her figure was very slim, almost curveless, not at all like the woman he'd used to envision. Never mind that, he told himself. That doesn't matter anymore. He sat down in the chair and looked across at her. She didn't return his gaze. Listen to me, he said then. I have every reason to suspect you of being infected, especially now that you've reacted in such a way to garlic. She said nothing. Haven't you anything to say? he asked. She raised her eyes. You think I'm one of them, she said. I think you might be. I'm awake, she said. I'm not in a coma. He said nothing. It was something he couldn't argue with, even though it didn't assuage doubt. I've been in Inglewood many times, he said finally. Why didn't you hear my car? Inglewood is a big place. He looked at her carefully, his fingers tapping on the arm of the chair. I'd like to believe you, he said. Would you, she asked. Another stomach contraction hit her, and she bent over with a gasp, teeth clenched. Robert Neville sat there, wondering why he didn't feel more compassion for her. Emotion was a difficult thing to summon from the dead, though. He had spent it all and felt hollow now without feeling. After a moment she looked up. Her eyes were hard. I've had a weak stomach all my life, she said. I saw my husband killed last week, torn to pieces right in front of my eyes. I lost two children to the plague, and for the past week I've been wandering all over, hiding at night, not eating more than a few scraps of food, sick with fear, unable to sleep more than a couple of hours at a time. Then I hear someone shout at me. You chase me over a field, hit me, drag me to your house. Then when I get sick because you shove a plate of reeking garlic in my face, you tell me I'm infected. Her hands twitched in her lap. What do you expect to happen, she said angrily. She slumped back against the couch and closed her eyes. Her hands picked nervously at her skirt. For a moment she tried to tuck in the torn piece, but it fell down again, and she sobbed angrily. He leaned forward in the chair. 
He was beginning to feel guilty now, in spite of suspicions and doubts. He couldn't help it. He had forgotten about sobbing women. He raised a hand slowly to his beard and plucked confusedly as he watched her. Would you... he started. He swallowed. Would you let me take a sample of your blood, he asked. I could... She stood up suddenly and stumbled toward the door. He got up quickly. What are you doing, he asked. She didn't answer. Her hands fumbled awkwardly with the lock. You can't go out there, he said, surprised. The street will be full of them in a little while. I'm not staying here, she sobbed. What's the difference if they kill me? His hands closed over her arm. She tried to pull away. Leave me alone, she cried. I didn't ask to come here. You dragged me here. Why don't you leave me alone? He stood by her awkwardly, not knowing what to say. You can't go out, he said again. He led her back to the couch. Then he went and got her a small tumbler of whiskey at the bar. Never mind whether she's infected or not, he thought. Never mind. He handed her the tumbler. She shook her head. Drink it, he said. It'll calm you down. She looked up angrily. So you can shove more garlic in my face? He shook his head. Drink it now, he said. After a few moments, she took the glass and took a sip of the whiskey. It made her cough. She put the tumbler on the arm of the couch, and a deep breath shook her body. Why do you want me to stay? she asked unhappily. He looked at her without a definite answer in his mind. Then he said, Even if you are infected, I can't let you go out there. You don't know what they do to you. Her eyes closed. I don't care, she said. I don't understand it, he told her over supper. Almost three years now, and still there are some of them alive. Food supplies are being used up. As far as I know, they still lie in a coma during the day. He shook his head. But they're not dead. Three years and they're not dead. What keeps them going? She was wearing his bathrobe. About five she had relented, taken a bath and changed. Her slender body was shapeless in the voluminous terry cloth folds. She'd borrowed his comb and drawn her hair back into a ponytail, fastened with a piece of twine. We used to see them sometimes, she said. We were afraid to go near them, though. We didn't think we should touch them. Didn't you know they'd come back after they died? She shook her head. No. Didn't you wonder about the people who attacked your house at night? It never entered our minds that they were... She shook her head slowly. It's hard to believe something like that. I suppose, he said. He glanced at her as they sat eating silently. It was hard, too, to believe that here was a normal woman. Hard to believe that after all these years, a companion had come. It was more than just doubting her. It was doubting that anything so remarkable could happen in such a lost world. Tell me more about them, Ruth said. He got up and took the coffee pot off the stove. He poured more into her cup, into his, then replaced the pot and sat down. How do you feel now? he asked her. 
I feel better, thank you. He nodded and spooned sugar into his coffee. He felt her eyes on him as he stirred. What's she thinking, he wondered. He took a deep breath, wondering why the tightness in him didn't break. For a while, he'd thought that he trusted her. Now he wasn't sure. You still don't trust me, she said. It's not that. Of course it is, she said quietly. She sighed. Oh, very well. If you have to check my blood, check it. He looked at her suspiciously, his mind questioning. Is it a trick? He hid the movement of his throat in swallowing coffee. It was stupid, he thought, to be so suspicious. He put down the cup. Good, he said. Very good. He looked at her as she stared into the coffee. If you are infected, he told her, I'll do everything I can to cure you. Her eyes met his. And if you can't? Silence a moment. Let's wait and see, he said then. They both drank the coffee. Then he asked, Shall we do it now? Please, she said, in the morning. I still feel a little ill. All right, he said, nodding. In the morning. They finished their meal in silence. Neville felt only a small satisfaction that she was going to let him check her blood. He was afraid that he might discover that she was infected. In the meantime, he had to pass an evening and a night with her, perhaps get to know her and be attracted to her. When in the morning he might have to... Later in the living room, they sat looking at the mural, sipping port, and listening to Schubert's fourth symphony. I wouldn't have believed it, she said, seeming to cheer up. I never thought I'd be listening to music again, drinking wine. She looked around the room. You've certainly done a wonderful job, she said. What about your house? It was nothing like this, she said. We didn't have a... How did you protect your house? He interrupted. Oh, she thought for a moment. We had it boarded up, of course, and we used crosses. They don't always work, he said quietly after a moment of looking at her. She looked blank. They don't? Why should a Jew fear the cross, he said. Why should a vampire who had been a Jew fear it? Most people were afraid of becoming vampires. Most of them suffer from hysterical blindness before mirrors. But as far as the cross goes, well, neither a Jew nor a Hindu nor a Muslim nor an atheist, for that matter, would fear the cross. She sat holding her wine glass and looking at him with expressionless eyes. That's why the cross doesn't always work. You didn't let me finish, she said. We used garlic, too. I thought it made you sick. I was already sick. I used to weigh a hundred and twenty. I weigh ninety-eight pounds now. He nodded. But as he went into the kitchen to get another bottle of wine, he thought, she would have adjusted to it by now, after three years. Then again, she might not have. What was the point in doubting her now? She was going to let him check her blood. What else could she do? It's me, he thought. I've been by myself too long. I won't believe anything unless I see it in a microscope. Heredity triumphs again. I'm my father's son, damn his moldering bones. 
Standing in the dark kitchen, digging his blunt nail under the wrapping around the neck of the bottle, Robert Neville looked into the living room at Ruth. His eyes ran over the robe, resting a moment on the slight prominence of her breasts, dropping then to the bronze calves and ankles, up to the smooth kneecaps. She had a body like a young girl's. She certainly didn't look like the mother of two. The most unusual feature of the entire affair, he thought, was that he felt no physical desire for her. If she had come two years before, maybe even later, he might have violated her. There had been some terrible moments in those days, moments when the most terrible of solutions to his need were considered, were often dwelt upon until they drove him half mad. But then the experiments had begun. Smoking had tapered off. Drinking lost its compulsive nature. Deliberately and with surprising success, he had submerged himself in investigation. His sex drive had diminished, had virtually disappeared. Salvation of the monk, he thought. The drive had to go sooner or later, or no normal man could dedicate himself to any life that excluded sex. Now, happily, he felt almost nothing, perhaps a hardly discernible stirring far beneath the rocky strata of abstinence. He was content to leave it at that, especially since there was no certainty that Ruth was the companion he had waited for, or even the certainty that he could allow her to live beyond tomorrow. Cure her? Curing was unlikely. He went back into the living room with the open bottle. She smiled at him briefly as he poured more wine for her. "'I've been admiring your mural,' she said. "'It almost makes you believe you're in the woods.' He grunted. "'It must have taken a lot of work to get your house like this,' she said. "'You should know,' he said. "'You went through the same thing.' "'We had nothing like this,' she said. "'Our house was small. "'Our food locker was half the size of yours.' "'You must have run out of food,' he said, looking at her carefully. "'Frozen food,' she said. "'We were living out of cans.' "'He nodded. "'Logical,' his mind had to admit. "'But he still didn't like it. "'It was all intuition, he knew. "'But he didn't like it. "'What about water?' he asked then. "'She looked at him silently for a moment. "'You don't believe a word I've said, do you?' she said. "'It's not that,' he said. I'm just curious how you lived. You can't hide it from your voice, she said. You've lost the talent for deceit. He grunted, getting the uncomfortable feeling that she was playing with him. That's ridiculous, he argued. She's just a woman. She was probably right. He probably was a gruff and graceless hermit. What did it matter? Tell me about your husband, he asked abruptly. Something flitted over her face, a shade of memory. She lifted the glass of dark wine to her lips. Not now, she said. Please. He slumped back on the couch, unable to analyze the formless dissatisfaction he felt. Everything she said and did could be a result of what she'd been through. It could also be a lie. Why should she lie, he asked himself. In the morning he would check her blood. What could lying tonight profit her when, in a matter of hours, he'd know the truth? You know, he said, trying to ease the moment, I've been thinking, if three people could survive the plague, 
Why not more? Do you think that's possible? she asked. Why not? There must have been others who were immune for one reason or another. Tell me more about the germ, she said. He hesitated a moment, then put down his wine glass. What if he told her everything? What if she escaped and came back after death with all the knowledge that he had? There's an awful lot of detail, he said. You were saying something about the cross before, she said. How do you know it's true? You remember what I said about Ben Cortman, he said, glad to restate something she already knew rather than to go into fresh material. You mean that man you... He nodded. Yes, come here, he said, standing. I'll show him to you. As he stood behind her, looking out the peephole, he smelled the odor of her hair and skin. It made him draw back a little. Isn't that remarkable, he thought. I don't like the smell. Like Gulliver returning from the logical horses, I find the human smell offensive. He's the one by the lamppost, he said. She made a slight sound of acknowledgement. Then she said, There are so few. Where are they? I've killed off most of them, he said, but they managed to keep a few ahead of me. How come the lamp is on out there, she said. I thought they destroyed the electrical system. I connected it with my generator so I could watch them. Don't they climb up and try and break it? I have garlic all over the post. She shook her head. You've thought of everything. Stepping back, he looked at her a moment. How can she look at them so calmly, he wondered. Ask me questions, make comments. When only a week ago she saw their kind tear her husband to pieces. Doubts again, he thought. Won't they ever stop? He knew they wouldn't until he knew about her for sure. She turned away from the window then. Will you excuse me a moment, she said. He watched her walk into the bathroom and heard her lock the door behind her. Then he went back to the couch after closing the peephole door. A wry smile played on his lips. He looked down into the tawny wine depths and tugged abstractedly at his beard. For some reason the words seemed grotesquely amusing, the carryover from a lost age, etiquette for young vampires. The smile was gone. And what now? What did the future hold for him? In a week, would she still be here with him, or crumpled in the never-cooling fire? He knew that, if she were infected, he'd have to try to cure her whether it worked or not. But what if she were free of the bacillus? In a way, that was a more nerve-wracking possibility. The other way, he would merely go on as before, breaking neither schedule nor standards. But if she stayed... If they had to establish a relationship, perhaps become husband and wife, have children. Yes, that was more terrifying. He suddenly realized that he had become an ill-tempered and inveterate bachelor again. He no longer thought about his wife and child, his past life. The present was enough. And he was afraid of the possible demand that he make sacrifices and accept responsibility again. He was afraid of giving out his heart or removing the chains he had forged around it to keep emotion prisoner. He was afraid of loving again. 
Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.